Warning. This episode contains several swear words. Also, apologies in advance for the slightly crunchy audio. I completely forgot to turn off the ventilation fan in the room before recording. I have tried to compensate for that as much as possible, but at some points it will just sound a little bit worse. Hello, and welcome to Tales from the Trunk, reading the stories that didn't make it. I'm Hilary B. Bismiak's. On today's episode, we have a dear friend of mine and just completely amazing writer, Kate Leckler. Welcome to the show. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Absolutely. When I started doing this show, I thought, of all my friends, you're one of the ones I definitely wanted to have on this first season. I've known you for, we've known each other for what, like three or four years at this point? Yes. A while. Yes. Mm-hmm. As listeners of the show may know, time is fake, so it doesn't really <laughs> matter. But yeah, we've, we've known each other for a while and have been, you know, critique partners off and on mm-hmm. for most of that time. Yes. Uh, Kate's writing is some of the most beautiful writing I think you'll probably ever read, listeners, so definitely check it out. Oh, thank you. That's uh, just really nice. Absolutely. I wouldn't say anything that wasn't true. This is radio. <laughs> I have a code of ethics to uphold. <laughs> this is the internet. Yeah. <laughs> this episode brought you to brought to you by the internet. <laughs> Everything here is real and true. <laughs> so, uh, Kate, what story are you going to be reading for us today? I am reading a story I wrote in 2015 called 4 p.m. at the Three-Eyed Dog. Ooh, fantastic. Yeah. All right. 4 p.m. at the Three-Eyed Dog. All right. When I walk into the joint, my shoes stick to the floor. Not the kind of bar sticky that I'm used to, the slight tackiness when too much beer has been spilled, the gentle tug on the sole of your shoe. This is stronger. When I lift my foot, strings of clear goo lace it to the wooden floor. I look up. Sure enough, there's something on the ceiling, like a giant sea urchin with a spiny face smiling down at me. Sorry, it's that time of the month. It shrugs with its whole body. (laughs) The three-eyed dog is the only place in town for the mutants, the freaks, the weirdos. My people, although you can't tell it by looking at me. And I'm about to knock it over. I nod up at the urchin creature and step out of my shoes, leaving them there. The rest of the floor is clean and dry. I make my way, sock-footed, up to the bar and rap on the counter. The bartender is bent over some glasses, back to me. He holds up a finger, so I take a moment to case the joint. One entrance, at the bottom of a flight of concrete stairs leading from the sidewalk outside. That's where I came in, and where that rat bastard Mickey Fink, such a pansy who wears gloves so as not to get his hands dirty, is waiting for me in the car. A few dusty windows about sidewalk height showcasing the feet of people walking by. An open room with an antique mirrored bar against the wall. A dim hallway leading to the bathrooms. With the clientele this place serves, they have three bathrooms, not sorted by gender, but by waste excretion method. And there, in the back, my ticket out. A door to the alley, propped open with a brick. The bartender turns around, spreads his hands on the counter, and asks what he can get me. He's tall, with a full head of salt and pepper hair. And by full head, I mean his entire head is covered in it. I can't see a face. 
The front of his head looks exactly like the back. I'm having one drink to take the edge off, so I order a whiskey sour. It ends up being more whiskey than sour, and I don't recognize the species of egg he cracks for the white, but I don't care. My hands tremble as I take it, clinking the ice in the glass, and he looks at me. Or, at least, I think he does. You all right, pal? Yeah, just bushed, getting up the nerve to go home to the wife. A firecracker, eh? Oh, yeah. I take out my wallet and show him the beat-up picture of my ex, her perfect face framed by dark hair, sporting a Clara Bow mouth. She's a beaut. How long you been married? Going on seven years. About time to get the itch, but she don't give me time for it. I know what you mean. His shoulders shake with laughter. My old woman's the same. I lift my glass to him and take a deep drink. The conversation's over, so he turns back to wiping down the counter. He's a nice enough guy, which is the part of the reason I need this drink. I don't want to care about what happens next. My ex, Sandra, she's back in Rhode Island now. New husband, new house, baby on the way. God bless her, she deserves it. I'm not doing this for her. I'm not doing it for no sick grandmother or knocked up girlfriend either. I'm doing it for me. With this money, I can start a new life. I can get away from Mickey, the boys, and our boss, Don Lombardi. He got his hooks into me when I was just a kid, saying I was the only one in his gang with such a special gift. Nobody was better than me at getting out of a tight spot. But a few years back, I told them it was my last job. Don Lombardi nodded, steepling his fingers together and looking down at the desk like it was the open casket of his mother. The family will be sorry to lose you, but if that's the way you want it, Jimbo, that's how it will be. He started to stick a hand out and then, remembering, withdrew it, wiping down the front of his slacks. He smiled apologetically. Nice doing business with you. When I got back home that night to a busted-up apartment, Sandra shaking in her nightdress, I remembered that moment. As the gang beat up on me, each fella getting in his punch or kick, I thought, he has no problem using me for his dirty work, but he won't even shake my hand. It wasn't until they were finished that I registered his presence hulking in the corner, lit only by the red glow of his cigar. He stepped forward, tapping ash onto my face. You're gonna work for me until I say you're done, he said. Scum like you should be glad for the job. I could open my right eye just enough to see Mickey scuttle out after him, pulling his gloves on tight and avoiding my gaze. The next day, Sandra packed her bags. On her way out, she bent over and kissed me on the forehead, avoiding my black eye and broken nose. I tried to speak, but she shushed me, pressing her photo into my palm. I hope you get out someday, Jimmy, but I'm getting out now. To date, I have done 64 last jobs. And they've been getting nastier as Lombardi gears up for war on the whole underground population. Seems like the bigger he gets, the more he has to fear. Lately, his rant is the freaks and skis balls taken over this town. Just last week, a couple of Molotov cocktails I lobbed through the window of a mutant-owned deli started a fire that killed a dozen people at an eight-year-old's birthday party. The papers would have called it a tragedy, except that it didn't make the papers. The birthday girl had three eyes. I may never forgive myself for that, but I sure as shit ain't forgiven Lombardi either. So today's the end of it. 
I'm going to take this money and disappear for good. Lombardi may be good at finding people, but I ain't exactly people. <laughs> Halfway through the drink, the alcohol hits my brain, turning the world fuzzy at the edges. The other patrons swim in my vision, a mess of teeth, eyes, and pulsating appendages. One of them slinks up and starts to make conversation. She's a stunner. Red dress practically painted on and smooth waves of platinum hair like Marlene Dietrich. Only two things put me off her. The curling antenna gently stroking my cheek and the job I have in front of me. No thanks, doll, I say, setting the glass down. I swivel around on my chair, getting ready to retrieve my shoes from their place by the door. They're not there anymore. I look up. The toe end of one is sticking out of the urchin's mouth. That's when I see them come in. Mickey, Ralph, and Stinker. Hands inside their jackets, hats pulled low. I swivel back to the counter, almost toppling off the chair. That drink was a lot stronger than I thought. I duck my head, scratching the back of my neck with a hand to shield my face from them, trying to think fast. Did Lombardi send these guys to check on me? Or is this one of his monster raids, as he calls them? If they were planning to shoot up the place, why didn't they wait till I come out with the loot? Unless I'm meant to get caught in the crossfire, too. One of Don Lombardi's all-too-frequent, unfortunate occurrences. The boys are still hanging up their coats. Screw the money. Missing shoes be damned. I prepare to get up and make my getaway. But the wobbles have got me again, stronger than before. I knock the chair down in my attempt to stand, and the broad with the red dress catches me with one hand. Her touch stings slightly. I look into her eyes and she winks, wiggling one of those antennae. I feel my cheek where she touched me before. It's numb. My knees give out and I take a breath to yell, but the bartender grabs my other arm. Even without a face, he manages to look menacing. How'd you like your drink? He asks. The dame laughs, a low huff. Together, they pick me back up and put me on a stool. You... You... My throat feels like a skid mark. I can only manage a rasp. You fucking traitors! We ain't the ones passing as human, guy, he whispers to me. They hold me down while Mickey, Ralph, and Stinker come up. Mickey leers at me, then grins to the boys to either side like he's saying, Get a load of this guy. My heart performs a complicated escape maneuver, kind of a duck and roll, when he finally speaks. Jim! We knowed you was planning on running today, so we cooked up a surprise for you. I knew it would end this way. But he doesn't finish talking. He just stands there like a peacock, thumb hooked in a suspender. And for the first time, I notice something I never saw before. Mickey ain't wearing gloves, and his hands, they're all thumbs. The look on my face must be priceless because they start laughing, the three of them slapping their thighs like they got fleas doing the Charleston. The dame and the bartender join in, and pretty soon the bar is howling. Even the urchin is cackling, showing rows and rows of teeth. And now I see it. They've all got it. Even Ralph and Stinker, something different, something mutant. With Ralph, it's his eyes. They blink sideways. Stinker licks his lips with a long, triple-forked tongue. Mickey finally catches his breath long enough to speak, and what he says changes my evening plans, my weekend plans, hell, plans for the rest of my life, short though it may be. 
Here's the lay of the land, Jim. You're working for me now, and I'm about to give you your first assignment. Kill Lombardi. The end. Whew. Lordy. <laughs> that was fantastic. Thank you. I love... I, I have a soft spot, I think, from... Probably from reading Callahan's Crosstime Saloon low these two decades ago, probably, for a hard-boiled plus... Uh, you know, hard-boiled plus fantasy in general. Yeah. But sort of that... that Dames in a bar mentality. <laughs> right, yeah. Yeah, and I really it, wanted I mean, to play with that noir voice. Mm-hmm. The, I feel like, you know, leaving aside the problematic elements of Garrison Keeler, that there's a huge amount of Prairie Home Companion that, like, everybody of a sort of... of a certain age and upbringing has that voice in their head oh yeah totally totally and and that voice that's that's like aware and sort of winking at the genre at the same time mm-hmm yeah that guy noir or um the calvin and hobbs character i can't remember his name um that's not spaceman spiff but his his noir persona yeah that there's like that influence just heavily riding on so many people yeah yeah, definitely. That was really fun. Thank you. So you said that you wrote that in 2015. Um, do you want to say a little bit about the story's history and, like, you know, where it started and sure. eventually where you decided to trunk it? Yeah, yeah. Well, I was uh, I was working at a bookstore. I was working at Square Books in Oxford, which is a famous independent bookstore. And, and I got the idea on a shift, and then I wrote it over my lunch break. Like, almost wrote it as it is. I wrote a draft of it, and I was really proud of it. And I showed it to a friend, and they were like, oh, cool. They didn't really care. And then I, I read it to some other friends, and they were also like, oh, cool. I, I, one of my problems is that I don't have a lot of friends here in town in Oxford that, that write or or read sci-fi fantasy. Most of, mm-hmm. my, uh, most of my sci-fi fantasy family is online. So they were just like, oh, I don't really get it, but all right. Yeah. But I was still so proud of it. So I sent it to uh, Daily Science Fiction, and then I sent it a couple other places. I can't even remember. And it just got rejected, and, and eventually I just kind of felt like my big problem with it is that I can't figure out what my narrator's special thing is. Like, he's obviously a mutant, and he's a mutant mm-hmm. in a way that isn't visible, but... I don't know what it is that he can do. So I just had this big, like, hanging question that was unanswered. And I don't know. I just, like, it's not that I gave up on the story. I still think it's a fun story. Even reading it today, I was like, yeah, this is pretty good. I should try this. Mm-hmm. But uh, but I just I sort of moved on to other things. And I, and I got other stuff published and was writing other things. I was writing my novel and finished that. And, you know, so it's just... Sometimes you trunk things not because they're bad, but just because you don't exactly know what to do with it, and your your brain's somewhere else. Oh yeah, that is that is such a big mood for me. <laughs> like, I I've definitely tossed things aside before because I'm like, oh, I, I really like this, and I cannot figure out this one thing about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
and you know when when you and I get our very prestigious short story collection deals, then I'm sure Absolutely. we'll pull out those stories and we'll figure it out. But until then, it's just like whatever. Yeah. Yeah. It was it was a fun writing exercise to write in this noir voice. Mm-hmm. I think when you're getting started as a writer, that there's this advice of like just finish every single thing that you write. Mm-hmm. And that at the beginning when you're when you're figuring out like how do I write things, that that's really helpful advice, but to stick with it sort of indefinitely as just like this is a rule. This is how you always have to do it. Can be really unhelpful, and, oh, yeah. like demoralizing. Because sometimes you start writing a thing, and you know it's not that you get to a part that's hard or that you get stuck on. It's just that you're like, okay, I satisfied my urge for this thing, and I am done with it. It's a really weird dance, and I see why like the ancients have this idea of a muse because because there is almost something i don't want to say supernatural but there's something inexplicable about about the creation process and knowing when you need to finish something and when you don't and that's only one you know one aspect of the creation process but mm-hmm. um, but it's just like i Sometimes you feel something more for a certain story than you do for another. And this one, I was like, it's like I had a little crush on this one, but not a crush enough that, like, I needed to date it. I was just like, yeah, you're cool. All right. See you later. Yeah. For reals. (laughs) That that makes so much sense to me. Um, And I'm I'm really glad that you can put that, uh, that idea into words. Because I think that's something that, like, a lot of people, a lot of, you know, there, there's all this discourse about finding your muse or discourse about fuck the muse and just, you know, write every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like, both of them can, both of them are valid. And you don't ever have to be one thing or the other forever. Yeah, both of them uh, are valid and both of them are harmful. Yeah. And, yeah. and so it's just, it's finding your footing. And that's why I've, I think I call it a dance because it feels like the steps are changing all the time. And you just, I don't know, you just gotta, I don't know. I feel like I'm speaking in a lot of really dumb metaphors right now, but I'm like, you just gotta listen to the music. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's, that's for real. Like when I started practicing, um, I practice Aikido and I started, when I started out, I was just like, you know, very bumbling and like, where do my feet go and what do my hands do? And, and luckily, the dojo where I take, uh, where I learn is, you know, very, uh, sensei is very good at sort of finding where you're at and meeting you there and bringing you to the next level, mm-hmm. which I think is like really valuable in any teacher. But then I've gotten to this point, like, I've been practicing for almost four years, and I've gotten to this point now where, like, I know the shapes of the techniques, and I can improvise around them, so, you know, whatever comes in at me, whether it's, like, suddenly somebody's, you know, consensually, but somebody is suddenly punching at my face, and, you know, I haven't trained specifically for that, but I know what to do with it, and, like, 
Right. I can you can feel the rhythm of it. Yes. And it's that same thing. It's that same thing with writing. Yeah. And you know, when I first started out, I just felt like such a baby writer, and I would even call myself that. I would sort of like be like, "Yeah, I'm a ba- I'm just a baby writer." But Mm -hmm. there was some point, and I don't know when it was, but I stopped thinking of myself that way. I feel like I have the knowledge of myself and what I like and how I write. And even Mm -hmm. though that knowledge is always changing, I feel that in in almost like an embodied way so that I no longer... I no longer feel like a newbie. I don't have as much published as I wish I did, but I don't feel like a newbie writer. I feel like I I know what writing is about for me. Yeah, and that's I think that's really important to know what it's about for yourself. Yeah. We were talking a bit in the pre-show about like being kind because there's just stuff going on in our lives outside of writing and there's always going to be stuff outside of your art that you're doing. And so I'm I'm wondering if you can say a little, like, expand a little bit more on what you were saying before the show, because I thought it was just so important to state over and over and over again, like, you gotta have balance. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, so uh, maybe four years ago, I almost, I almost committed myself into a hospital because I was either having a nervous breakdown or on the edge of a nervous breakdown for months. And it was, it was self, it was, it was brought on by me. I I had taken on too much, but, um, but I was also holding myself to a standard that was ridiculous and unhealthy. And, and I Mm -hmm. was so, I was beating myself up when I didn't write and when I didn't write enough and when I didn't submit enough. And, uh, and I just felt awful and, and had gotten myself to a very unhealthy place. And I made a decision that holiday season. I was like, no, never again. I'm never treating myself like this again. I'm never getting to this place again. Yeah. Whether that means that I don't create enough, whether that means that I don't finish all the things I want to finish in life, that is okay with me as long as I don't get here again because it was unbearable. And um, yeah. And, you know, I got into therapy and started doing some meditation and and just like being easier on myself and forgiving myself. And that was such a, it's so easy to say forgive yourself and it's so hard to do, but I I really am proud of myself because I learned how to forgive myself. And so, Mm -hmm. and that ability to forgive yourself is important in, in so many areas of life more than just the creative process, but it has made writing fun and a part of my life that I love and not a part of my life that I dread or or feel guilt about and that's just you know been been so valuable I I would not I don't know I just I wouldn't go back yeah yeah for sure thank you for sharing that it's it's so true like to have to to find that place where you can be okay with yourself yeah um and to make sure that that's to make sure that that is the primary focus in your life is to be okay rather than, you know, it, it, it's so easy as artists to be like, my value is my creative output. Yeah, and, and I, I wrote about this, I blogged about it at the time because the other thing is I had just gotten on Twitter maybe a few months earlier, and I really do feel like Twitter contributed to this, but it wasn't oh it wasn't Twitter's fault, it was the way I was using Twitter and the way I was thinking about 
the people I was interacting with on Twitter. I was seeing them all as either rivals or goals, Mm -hmm. like that person or this person or whoever else is talking about how much they wrote that day or what they've submitted or what they've gotten accepted. And, And I just felt eaten up by jealousy and incompetence. And it was so so detrimental for me and I had to, I had to stop. And, you know, I haven't, I haven't always been super great at managing every aspect of my mental health, but I was really happy that that, that was a turning point for me and I haven't turned back. I haven't turned back into that, um, sort of, I don't know, person eaten up by, by jealousy and self blame. Mm hmm. Yeah. We've talked previously on the show, on other episodes, about how there's a certain amount of, like, value to... (sighs) There is a certain amount of value to Twitter, although it is also an apocalyptic hellscape, in that it allows fandom... It's a really great space for fandom in some ways. It's also a really toxic space Mm -hmm. for fandom in some ways, but that the the section of fandom that is like both a fan and a creator that there's so much opportunity to be transparent and yes. like you know talk about like here's you know here's what I've written this day here's what I've written this week and that can be really good but it can also be really detrimental it can be like you know and 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 I don't think either of us is trying to knock, like, sharing, you know, this is my word count for today. Oh, no, yeah. But to be, um, as a person consuming that, to be able to be mindful of how you're consuming it and how you're reading that. Yeah. I, I, I absolutely think so. The way I interact with Twitter is on me. It's not on anyone else. What, mm-hmm. The way they're, they're posting or what they're sharing, it's on me to regulate what I allow that to do to me. And honestly, I wouldn't be the writer I am without Twitter. I'm so grateful for Twitter. Like, as, as I said, Oxford, Mississippi, it's a great writing town. It's the home of Faulkner, uh, if you mm-hmm. didn't know that. But, um, but most writers here write sort of gritty Southern realism. Mm-hmm. And so I don't have a great writing community here. Um, so my writing community is is all online. And and, you know, it's people like you that I met through Twitter. This is the first time we've actually ever spoken voice to voice to each other. And yeah, <laughs> but we know each other and we've shared a lot. And I think that that's that's all due to Twitter and the Internet. And so I'm grateful. I just I also have, like you said, be mindful. Yeah, I think one yeah. of the one of the sort of detrimental lies that I told myself for a while was that if I stopped writing, that it mm-hmm. meant that I wasn't a writer. Um, and that, and that if I stopped that there was some danger that I'd never start again. Yeah. And I think part of learning who I am as a writer is realizing that, no, I'm going to write again. Even if I don't write today, even if I don't write this week or this month, I am going to write again because I want to write again. It's not like only forward momentum that's keeping me going. Yeah. Which, which takes us back to another thing that I mentioned in the pre-show was that, um, you know, I haven't written... I don't think I've written, like, fiction, which it's so hard to think of other sorts of writing as writing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But, like, I I haven't written anything that was not, like, documentation for my day job. Mm -hmm. Pretty much since, like, certainly not this year. Yeah. 
have I written anything, and but I've also been in a space where I'm like putting all this work into this podcast and making this happen and yes. like launching this big creative project, which is huge and awesome. Yes, and both of those things. It is both of those things. Yeah, and if I do say so myself. <laughs> You know, two years ago, even, I don't think I would have been able to be as cool with the fact that I have not had writing output in, you know, four months, over four months, probably. Yeah. You know, other than, like, I'm writing show notes and drafting descriptions for this podcast. And, like, I was pitching it to people before I, before I launched it and, like, figuring out what the concept was. Right. And that's all valid work. Absolutely. Those are real things you're doing. Yeah. And and real output and there's tangible tangible results for that work. Yeah. In April's episode, we had this conversation with Sarah Hollowell where she was saying, "Well, what have I written and had gotten to the end of the year last year and was like, "Oh, I don't know that I really did anything." And her editor from Huffington Post was like, "Well, you wrote this baller essay." For the Huffington Post. Mm-hmm. And she's like, oh, yeah. Right. And, like, it's all work, and it's all valid. And even even circling back to what we kind of started with, like, even if you don't publish it, it's still valid work. Yeah. Right. And it may feed into something. But even if it doesn't, that's fine. Mm-hmm. So, um... One of the one of the many reasons I wanted to talk to you on this podcast, one of them was that we've never spoken voice to voice before, and I'm like, I want to make 2019 the year I connect with my internet friends in some way other than text. Yeah, yeah. But one of the reasons I wanted to have you on this show is that you have a really interesting mix of perspectives on writing because you are a writer and you're an editor and you're a professor. Hmm. Yes. And so I wanted to, I, I guess I kind of wanted to ask, like, how do those two lenses, um, besides being a writer, how do those lenses inform how you see your own writing and how you see other people's writing? Hmm. That's a good question. I think probably teaching influences my own writing uh, more than editing does, because as I'm teaching, and I'm really lucky, I have, I have a great job um, where I teach a variety of classes. Some of them I teach over and over, and sometimes I'm, I'm thrown something new. Mm-hmm. But even when I'm teaching the ones I teach over and over, I'm always trying to change things a little bit. I, each semester, if I'm teaching a class I've taught before, I try to add at least one work I haven't read before. And so I'm always exposing myself to new stuff and thinking about history and thinking about language and you know through teaching Mrs. Dalloway which is not even in my time period I'm an early modernist which means I I think about Shakespeare and those dudes Mm -hmm. uh, around the time of Shakespeare but um teaching Mrs. Dalloway made me think a lot about voice and point of view and made me sort of experiment in my own writing with with trying to write in a voice similar to Mrs. Dalloway and um and now I'm writing this this new novel influenced heavily by Moby Dick because I love Moby Dick and because yeah. uh because that's the kind of stuff that I'm that I'm always engaging with I'm I'm sort of engaging with classic literature which there's there's you know a lot of problems with the canon and with what we're calling classic literature and I want to engage with those with my students but I also 
I don't know, by thinking about Wordsworth or Shakespeare or Chaucer or whatever else, thinking about the, the worlds that they're writing from and, and about mm-hmm. informs the way I create worlds and the way I, I don't know, play with language. Yeah. And then um, sometimes my students will ask questions that then make me think about things differently too and, and, and which sort of informs my writing. And then the editing, I do a lot of freelance editing for, I've marketed myself as, a, as an editor for sci-fi fantasy, but I also happen to get, because I am connected to academics, I get a lot of uh, academic editing as well. So I edit dissertations mm-hmm. and articles and book chapters and stuff like that. And I don't know if that informs my own writing because it's such a different mode of thinking. I actually have to do them at different times and I cannot write if I've already been editing that day. Like I have to do my mm-hmm. own writing first and then my editing second because once I get into editing brain, I don't know, I just I can't like sit down and, uh, and, and create freely um, right. without that editing voice talking at me. But I do think it, it affects the way I read, you know, fiction, uh, looking mm-hmm. for, looking at it more critically. I tend to be, when I'm reading for enjoyment, I tend to not really be a critical reader at all. I just sort of sit back and let the story take me where it takes me. And uh, mm-hmm. and friends will be like, well, what did you think about this point? I didn't feel like her motivation was really earned or whatever. And I'm just like, I don't know. It seemed fine ah. to me. I liked it. <laughs> so I do think as like editing is helping me look at already published works more critically, which can be good Mm -hmm. and also can be bad. (laughs) Right. (laughs) I want to be able to turn off that part of my brain and just like sit back and like really sink into a book and not, not feel like I need to think about whether or not the, uh, did the inciting event happen by page three? You Mm -hmm. know? Yeah. So, um, I, I have a confession. Yes. This is probably not the first time I've ever shared this. I was I was rubbish in high school, like outside of basically outside of art classes mm-hmm. and like computer science. I was just totally unmotivated and you know and really disliked English classes specifically. That's so interesting because because at the time I was like, you are making me ruin reading. Yeah. And I say this as a confession, A, because I am a writer, and B, because I ended up getting my bachelor's in creative writing and a minor in English literature, and I almost accidentally got an English major. (laughs) We have shouts to my man, Dr. Bradshaw. I know you're not listening, probably. (laughs) Come on, Dr. Bradshaw! Shouts to you, nonetheless. We had this this, uh, professor in the English department, and he would say, you know... Oh, you know, feel free to stop by my office sometime. We'll have tea. We'll just talk about what you're doing, what you're studying. And if the joke was if you drank the tea that he offered you, you would become an English major. Yeah. It was just like pretty much a guarantee that you would become an English major. And I had it happen to friends. Mm-hmm. And I very nearly, like I never, at the time I never drank the tea, you know. Don't he drink had, the like, tea. Is red rose tea? <laughs> wow. But I did go to like some little English department socializing, you know, happy hour thing, and had like 
I don't know what it was, if it was like a hot chocolate or something. Like I brought some mix mm-hmm. with me and took hot water there. So that you wouldn't have to drink their tea? And I wouldn't have to drink their tea, but I still had the hot water. And so it yeah. had like, I was like a couple semesters away from graduating. And I was like looking at my class plan for the rest of my time in college. And I was like, so I need this and this and this and this. And then I, I wrote them all out and I was like, wait, that, that more than satisfies the requirements for a creative writing major. Does that, that makes me an English major with a focus in creative writing. That's hilarious. Now I want to write a story where the English department is like part of fairy and like you can't eat anything in a fairy, right? Because if you do, then you're... Make it so. Please make it so. (laughs) But so, so um, I ended up in college and I think it was partly just a matter of choice of like having agency in the classes I was taking, but I ended up in college taking you know when i was like oh i need i need another four credits to fill out my schedule this semester what would be fun to take and the fun things to take for me basically were english english classes so your attitude totally changed yeah my attitude totally changed and it was it was about i think it was partly about personal choice and like mm-hmm. being able to exercise agency and partly it was seeing you know we you have to do a lot of close reading in English classes, but you also have to do a lot of close reading in creative writing classes. And like, yeah. we were doing these exercises where we were like, my one professor called it a story plug, where you'd read some well-known story and then you would try to emulate the author's voice and just do like a 500-word little plug that would fit into that story. And so mm-hmm. like, you know, like trying to trying to emulate. Uh, Tim O'Brien's voice and the things they carried or something like that like you really have to read closely and you know I I reading hasn't been ruined for me Mm -hmm. but if I want to if I'm reading something that I really like I can turn that part on and say oh well I really like what they're doing and I'd like to now figure out how they're doing that yes yeah I think one thing that helped me more than anything, honestly, was reviewing. So I think starting in 2014 and up through maybe the beginning of 2016, I reviewed uh, books for fantasyliterature.com, mm-hmm. which is the biggest fantasy and sci-fi review site on the internet. And it's uh, and it's staffed by a lot of great people. And having to review books helped me think more about craft. than, um, mm-hmm. And I think it really affected the way I approached craft. And I so I'm really grateful that I got the opportunity to do that. Um, but I'm also grateful, that, like you said, that I have the ability to turn it off because yeah. I still want to be that that naive, wide-eyed reader sometimes who's just like floating along the current of story and is not thinking about whether or not X plot event has happened yet or like are we in act three of the... Mm-hmm. <laughs> like I don't care about that shit when I'm reading. Yeah. Maybe after you're done reading, you'll be like, oh. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And and one thing, you mentioned story plugs. I really like... Um, I've never done that, but I like to take paragraphs from books that I really like and try to to write rewrite the paragraph with, um, with new, like, nouns and verbs, but using the same essential sentence structure. That's taught mm-hmm. me a lot about writing. So... 
there's all kinds of different stuff you can do and, and little little tricks you learn from from classes or from teaching or even from talking to like my editing clients is definitely stuff that I that I can feed into my own work but I can't think of like one big thing it's all just been like little crumbs that I've gotten along the way there's an exercise that I remember doing uh, when I took Mary Robinette Kowal's short story intensive mm. where she gives you a piece of dialogue like just a dialogue exchange with no tags Mm -hmm. no anything it's just here are the lines that must be spoken and then that assignment is write what's going on around it Mm -hmm. and it's it's a really fun exercise and like it planted a a seed in my head that I haven't yet figured out how to use but like you know it was one of those like really great events for me and it I would recommend anybody who has the... It's a really intense class. It mm-hmm. takes place over one weekend. Yeah. Um, and so you don't sleep a whole lot, and <laughs> you don't get to see your family, but you write a lot, and you meet a lot of really quality people, and it's pretty affordable. So I really recommend anybody who feels like they're at a... Especially anybody who feels like they're at a sort of beginner level Mm -hmm. to really if you can make it work and like you know let's not get into the clarion discourse here Uh, yeah anybody can be a writer the only thing you have to do to be a writer is to write things yeah and even if you've wrote things 10 years ago and haven't written since then you're still a writer yeah and there are all but, kinds of ways to do this. And so I'm really glad you mentioned that that online workshop. There's all kinds of online workshops like that. Cat Rambo does a lot. The Cat um, Rambo is like goals workshops for me because she yeah. just does so many things. And like, yeah, it's a golden age for so many things thanks to the internet. Yeah, there's there's amazing workshops out there. And, and then, you know, you don't even have to take workshops. I, mm-hmm. I don't know if, if you might want to edit this out if, if they no longer believe this, but uh, a while ago, years ago, I was talking to Sarah Gailey about workshops and they were like, yeah, I'm not a workshop person. And like Sarah Gailey, you can't get a better writer or like a more like <laughs> awesome and sort of up and coming. Are they even considered up and coming anymore? They're just like solidly, they're, they're, yeah. they're solidly there. Um, and this podcast rides hard for Sarah Gailey. Yeah, it, this continues. <laughs> and they haven't. They don't do workshops. Workshops is not their thing. So you you can become a writer and be a writer in all kinds of different ways. Hmm. Yeah, and I I think that that's you know that really ties into what we were saying earlier about just being kind to yourself. That that's really crucial is to acknowledge that there's no one right way. Yeah to be a writer the the thing you have to do to be a writer is to write things yes and if you've written a thing congratulations you're a writer yes and it's so hard to not compare yourselves to other people yeah it really but is. to to really try to you know to be you rather than to be the next somebody else yes there's a poem that i always go back to it's by miguel de uñamuno and it's, it's basically about, like, keeping your eyes on your own work and, like, and doing the work and that the work itself is, is the reward. Mm-hmm. And so I, 
I, I almost, it's too long to get a tattoo of, but I would love to have a <laughs> tattoo of the whole poem because it's just like, it's this sort of touchstone for me. What's the name of that poem? The poem is called Throw Yourself Like Seed by Miguel de Unamuno. Perfect. And, and it's, it's uh, in translation. Will... Awesome. Uh, from Portuguese or Spanish? Spanish, I think, although that's a good question. I'm not sure. Well, irrelevant for yes. this. Yes. But, uh, and listeners, we will have that uh, hopefully linked in the show notes. We will at least have the name of it and where you can find it if you can't read it freely online. Yes. Yeah, there's there is a really there's really something to be said for like for coming to terms like finding peace with being able to create something and not holding yourself to anything else that creation is the creation is the reward in some ways mm-hmm. yeah and you know i don't know i feel kind of maybe hypocritical saying this because i i do want to be published i want to have a novel. I want to have several novels out there. Mm-hmm. But even just the fact that I finished a novel, even if even if it never gets published, I did a thing that so few people have done. Yeah, that's it's something to be celebrated, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm proud of it. Whether or not anything happens with it, I'm I'm proud of this this little thing. It's imperfect and and that's fine. I still made it and I love it. Mm-hmm. And you should be proud of it. And it's so, you know, circle, circling back, endlessly circling in a widening gyre. Uh, <laughs> yes! Gotta, gotta throw in my English almost major yes. chops there a little bit. But circling back to earlier, like, in comparing yourself, it's so, it's so funny. You know, we have so much access to the creators that we love both for good and for ill Mm. but in the fandom space like you know it's not i grew up following my parents to cons Mm -hmm. and like they would know authors there and like have conversations with them which is super cool but like they only you know i don't think my dad was like ever pen pals with his heroes you know he he would talk to them um be recognized by a few like right he kind of discovered lois mcmaster bujold which is super cool yeah but like you know we with social media have so much access and like we're both friends with sarah gailey for instance Mm -hmm. who is like this immense name in science fiction and fantasy now and we've both known them since they were you know just like had a couple stories out. A baby writer. Yeah. Yeah. Since they were a baby writer. And, like, it can be... It's really important to be able to see when your friends succeed like that and celebrate it, Mm -hmm. rather than just seeing them as a rival. Because if you see your friends as rivals, then you're not really seeing them as friends. Yes. Yeah. And that is so destructive for relationships and for your personal happiness and and like like I've realized a few years ago like this sounds selfish but but I don't even mean it in in like a a selfish way I just my personal happiness is all I have it's all that I am in control of so mm-hmm. I can choose to see my friends as friends and I can choose to not 
compare myself with them and and I can choose to stop giving myself shit when I don't write every day. Yeah. And I just have so much of a better life when I do that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's so so much of writing is about mental health. I was yeah. And it's really interesting because I feel like in the circles, I feel like we have a lot of Twitter discourse in common. And it mm-hmm. feels like in the circles that I follow anyways, people are always talking about mental health, which is great. Like like more power to it. Bring bring on more visibility. But uh but I love that that writers are thinking about this. It seems like people that I'm friends with and close to are approaching writing very holistically and I'm Mm -hmm. happy for that because I don't want to be and I don't want any of my friends to be the kind of stereotype of a writer from like the 50s or 60s some like embittered old whiskey soaked man Mm -hmm. yeah for sure or gin soaked woman right (laughs) (laughs) or uh I don't know rum-soaked, non-gender-identified person? Yes. Yeah. I don't, I don't want to be that person who, who is judging myself by my output and by the number of fan letters I'm getting. Like... Mm-hmm. Which, to be clear, you're getting hundreds a day. <laughs> I wish. No, I don't actually wish. I do not wish. That would be so overwhelming. I'm glad I'm not famous. <laughs> yeah. So... At this point, I think we've said a lot of wise and smart things. Are there any words of wisdom? Um, we're going to bring it back. I think at this point, I can safely say for this podcast, it's a favorite of, let's just talk about time travel for a second. Is there anything that you know now that you wish that young Kate, you know, baby writer Kate could have known? Oh, God. You know, I really wish I'd start. Here's what I wish. I wish I'd known that I wanted to write. Mm. I wish I'd known that I wanted to write because I didn't even know that I wanted to write fiction until I was like in my early 30s. And God, all these people, here's the thing that does make me sick where I do compare myself (laughs) to other people. All these people who are like, yeah, I was on Live Journal when I was 13, and I've been writing (laughs) fanfic since I was 16. And now I have all these published stories and I'm like 22 and I'm just like, man, not that I'm jealous of their published stories, although maybe I am a little bit, but it's just Mm -hmm. like, I wish I had that knowledge. I wish I had known that I wanted to write and pursued it because, because I could have been having this fun so much earlier. Mm -hmm. Not even because I could have had publications. Like, obviously that's what I want, but also because I just could have been doing this earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's safe to say that people who are listening to this podcast have some interest in writing, yeah. but listeners, if you have interest in writing but don't currently write, try it out. You might like it. You might not like it, and that's perfectly valid as well. Just, like, don't go on LiveJournal because it's just Russian now, and not that there's anything wrong with being Russian, but... <laughs> oh, the, Hillary. The cult, as somebody who was, you know, 16 and on Live Journal back in the day. See you. It's like, you that I'm jealous of. <laughs> Listeners, I am not going to link the embarrassing juvenilia that I have posted on my Live Journal 
that will be an exercise for you, the terrible cyber sleuth. And I, I think I only... I probably posted, like, one... Maybe two stories on LiveJournal, and then I have at least one story that I, like, serialized on uh, the Brass Goggles forum back when steampunk was a thing. Damn. Yeah. Deep uh, cuts. I know. Real deep cuts. Uh, at, at some point, listeners, if you're interested, I may post some of this embarrassing <laughs> writing on the Patreon. So Yay! go ahead and support that. And uh, you can read my my terrible stories as opposed to the just sort of like wrote this in college. It was okay. I wrote most of these in college, but some of them are much more terrible than the other ones. <laughs> some are ju- some are just like deeply mediocre. <laughs> but yeah, like I was I was there, and the culture on LiveJournal then, you know, the the Twitter culture now is its own thing, and it can be bad and it can be good, and that is. That can also be said about live journal, mm-hmm. but it's like it's very different things. If a if we were going to compare LJ to something, I'd say the closest analog would be Tumblr, which I mean Tumblr is its own trash fire and has its own things going on. But like in terms of fan discourse, uh, old live journal comment threads and Tumblr are I think closely related. Yeah. So what I hear you saying is, don't lament my lost years on Live Journal. Don't lament your lost years on Live Journal. It was uh, a wash in teen angst, <laughs> and frankly, a lot of really eye-opening Harry Potter fanfic. <laughs> we can always feel that we're missing out on something, or that we have missed out on something, but don't let that stop you, and don't let that make you feel less than. Yeah. So we're getting about to the point where we should be wrapping up. So, Kate, do you want to tell listeners where we can find you and if there's anything that you'd like to plug? Yeah, sure. My Twitter account is my name. Uh, As far as I know, I'm the only Kate Leckler in the world. So that's me, at Kate Leckler, K-A-T-E-L-E-C-H-L-E-R. As the only Hillary Bissonyx in the world, I feel you. Yes. Long distance high five. Woo! Um, also, I am an editor, and I edit um, sci-fi fantasy, in addition to other things. Um, and you can find my editing website at cephalopodediting.com. And yeah, my writing is all on my website, which is at kateleckler.com. And you can check that out. I have a lot of stories where women get retribution of some sort. Yes. They're so good. <laughs> Uh, we will have links to all of that in the show notes. Uh, Kate Leckler, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, thank you for joining us. Uh, and stick around next month on July the 19th. We will be having a wonderful debut author, Valerie Valdez, who is going to be coming on and talking about lots of great stuff. I have no idea because we haven't recorded that one yet. Uh, So stick around for that one next month, and thank you so much. Bye-bye, everyone. Tales from the Trunk is mixed and produced in beautiful Oakland, California. You can support the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash trunkcast. Patrons of the show get access to show outtakes and other content that can't be found anywhere else. 
You can find the show on Twitter at TrunkCast, and I tweet at HBBisniacs. If you like the show, consider taking a moment to rate and review us on your preferred podcast platform. And remember, don't self-reject.